geothermal is a resource that's it's there. It's happening. Whether we take advantage of it or not, I mean, that's that's up to us. It's not something that if we design these systems correctly, that we're going to be depleting these resources. I mean, if you give it time, thermal fields are diffuse. Things heat up. That heat is transferring from the core of the Earth to the surface. If you design everything correctly, you do have you know, a renewable and sustainable system. Welcome to From the Field, a podcast logging real-life scientists and their efforts to improve the world, one study at a time. I'm Priya Shelley. In this episode, I speak with Christian Hardwick, a geophysicist who specializes in geothermal exploration by using gravity and electromagnetic studies. Christian tells us how he found his passion for geothermal exploration by way of carpentry in Antarctica. I was hired to be a a carpenter there. So we would go down early season, you know, we'd get down about August uh, during the year, which is sort of the end of winter. And we'd start building things for the researchers and scientists that were going to come down for that summer season. So the scientists would show up in October We'd have a little bit of prefabrication going on, and then we'd start setting up all of their field camps and their huts. So basically, you know, we were science support. We'd set everything up for them, make sure it was good. They'd come in, do their science. When everything was over, they'd pack up, head out. We'd come back out to their field site, break everything down. I had taken a essentially a four-year break from academics you know, I ended up coming back to it just because I needed, you know, something more. But once I got back into it, that first that first semester was hard. But, you know, I I got back in there, kept my head down, you know, pushed pretty hard and, and was able to get on top of things. And, and I mean, math and physics, they kind of they don't necessarily come natural to me. It was something that I had to work at, you know, as it was wrapping up my you know, my work at the university, I was actually uh, a thesis that was a uh, collaboration with with the agency that I work for now. And so it was kind of a natural progression to kind of step in that direction because they needed someone with my expertise. Christian works with FORGE, Frontier Observatory for Research and Geothermal Energy, at a proposed field site just outside Milford, Utah. It's dedicated to researching enhanced geothermal systems, or EGS, which are man-made geothermal reservoirs. Here, Christian and his team are laying the groundwork to harness the potential for geothermal energy as a renewable resource. A renewable resource is one that can be replenished at the same rate that it is extracted so that there's no depletion. So essentially, this is not a finite quantity that, you know, once you mine it, or extract it, it's done for, you move on to the next. It's something that is continual, and if you do it right, it can be sustainable. So the major you know, renewables would be solar, wind, and, and then geothermal. So the forage project, um, this has been going for two years, I believe, maybe a little bit longer. Forage, it stands for Frontier Observatory for Research in Geothermal Energy. 
basically what they want to achieve is a, a dedicated site where scientists and engineers will be able to develop, test, and accelerate breakthroughs in enhanced geothermal systems. If you go 2 to 10 kilometers beneath the Earth's surface, you'll find a lot of really hot rocks. Fracturing and extracting this heat from the rocks would provide an immense amount of clean energy. That can only be done with an enhanced geothermal system. The first step is finding a suitable drilling location with an exploratory well and the funding to do so. So basically what's happening here is that DOE is putting this money forward for you know, a handful of teams to compete and essentially say who has the best site. So there were five teams um, in the first phase and then going into phase two, there was a down select. Um, our group here uh, Utah, we were one of the two. The other one is uh, Fallon, Nevada uh, team. So we're down to two and then we're actually just wrapping up this phase currently, and there will be another down select to the final site, which, you know, everybody's excited about. But our site specifically, we put in a well, I believe the final number ended up being around four and a half, five million dollars, just a little bit of pocket change. Usually that's that upfront kind of risk that investors are looking at is that, hey, you're going to spend four and a half, five million dollars on a well, maybe even more, depending on depth and other parameters. And there's a chance that it's not going to hit a reservoir and it's going to fail. I mean, that's that's a lot of money to just kind of throw away. With our site, um, it took us 60 days to drill to our total depth, which was you know down to 7,600 feet below the ground surface. And that got us into our target zone, um, which would be you know our reservoir between 175 degrees. Celsius and 225 degrees Celsius. 7,600 feet is about five Empire State buildings stacked on top of each other, including the point. These are kind of our, these parameters that we need to meet specifically for. Forge has to be within a certain depth range and it's got to be within a certain temperature range. So it's sort of their, their sweet spot. And it has to be the right type of rock, crystalline basement. So this is sort of a, this is a hot dry rock. This is going to be an EGS system. Um, so those are all important my part in this, you know, with the rest of my team is there was a lot of work up front, you know, desktop work. And then we go out in the field and do surveys to figure out, first of all, is there a system here? What are the characteristics? And at what depth are we going to reach these temperatures? And so we do everything just from making surface measurements, calculations, you know, on, on our desktops. And uh, we come back and say, OK, we think that if we drill at this spot, we're going to hit this temperature at this depth. And there's no way to confirm that until you put a hole in the ground. Once we reach that reservoir depth and confirm those temperatures later on, we were within 300 feet. We got you know down to 7,600 feet um, for our reservoir, well within our reservoir. So yeah, kudos to us, yay. This was a victory for Christian and his team. In finding a suitable drilling location, the EGS has the ability to function properly at a site. EGS works by creating a closed-loop injection well by injecting water into the ground and fracturing the hot rock, which then expands the amount of permeable rock. The water is heated underground by the rocks, and the super-hot water returns to the surface, completing the loop. The heat is then released as vapor and passes through a turbine generator to create energy. 
we were happy that it, uh, you know, that we were able to hit our target at the depth that we, you know, estimated that it would be at. Were we surprised? Not really. I mean, we knew that it was going to be about that spot because we understand the system well. The team wouldn't have been able to hit its target without Christian's collection of data. Geothermal resources are a natural commodity in the U.S., but they can't be harnessed throughout the entire country. It's all dependent on the co-location of heat, permeability, and the fluid deep within the ground. Christian uses gravity and electromagnetic fields to determine where the best areas are located within the western part of the country. My main role with geothermal energy is actually the exploration stage. So measuring different properties, you know, in the field, we might grab temperature um, and geophysics will measure gravity, uh, electromagnetic fields, bring all that data back in with us. And then we'll really kind of get to work on uh, creating a model for this area to understand sort of what is the size of the system. Once we have sort of this volume and a temperature and we understand what the physical properties are of, of this potential reservoir, then we can go one step further and say, okay, this is its potential use, whether or not it's, you know, economic, we kind of hand it over to industry at that point or anybody else that wants to, to dive into it and work out what the economics of that would be. You know, is it, is it going to be economic to produce, you know, electricity out here? That's typically sort of the, the golden prize. Um, but, you know, one thing that's sort of overlooked is that you can use this for more than just generating electricity. You can, you've got a lot of direct use applications of using this heat energy without having to create electricity. And I think that's sort of where most the potential is. Christian explains that while out on the field, his process and collection of data helps him in digitally modeling a prospective area, which can reveal the characteristics of a perfect drill site. (laughs) Everything that has a mass has a gravitational field, no matter the size. I mean, it's just that when we think about, you know, gravity, you're always thinking about the Earth's gravity, what's holding us to the Earth's surface. But that doesn't mean that you yourself, you know, that you don't have, you know, a gravitational pull, that your cell phone, that your pencil, your your computer, your shoes, I mean, everything has, everything that has mass has a gravitational field. Um, it's just that it's so small that it doesn't matter to you. When we go out and do these surveys, the actual surveys that we're doing, there's geologic mapping of the surface, which you know allows us to kind of see where we have fault structures, which those fault structures are important with the geometry of you know the the subsurface or even say our bedrock, which would be you know our hard surface or the bottom of a basin. I don't look at a whole lot that's on the surface. I'll look at terrain. But mainly we'll say, okay, through this valley, we might want to do a couple of transects or we want to measure the gravity field. And then when we go to analyze this gravity field, we look at the relationship between the gravity field and the density of the material that's beneath your feet. So, for example, you know, a a basin, a deep basin will have a prominent gravity signal. And that gravity signal is based on the low density fill or the low density sediments or the basin fill compared to your bedrock, which would be like your mountain, your nice big mountain ranges on the sides of it. Um, what happens is whenever you have that high density, you've got larger gravity fields or acceleration due to gravity. So you have gravity highs 
and then out in the middle of the basin where you have really thick um, sedimentary fill that's much lower density, you have gravity lows. And so you have this contrast as you kind of go from one range on the side of, uh, of a valley through the middle and then to the other side, you'll have this nice kind of big, typically a big gravity low. And then what we do is we'll step that forward into modeling and we model those densities and they can work out how thick that basin fill is in that area. Um, if we do that in a few places, then we kind of work out a geometry um, ended up getting a volume, which then ties back to sort of our geothermal system. We want to know what the resource is. We want to know sort of the characteristics of it. How big is it? What's the temperature? Um, gravity is one way to get at sort of the geometry or the structure of it. The other method Christian specializes in is electromagnetic fields, which has a slightly different approach to seeking out the best spot for harnessing energy. We are making measurements on the electrical fields around, say, a survey site or a station. And what those electrical fields are really telling us is sort of what are the electrical properties of the material in the subsurface. You know, out here in Utah, when you have saline fluids um, and you've got temperature, they're typically geothermal fluids. So geothermal fluids will have this signature in the subsurface of being conductive electrically more so than fresh groundwater. So we kind of look for those, we look for those signals and those differences. And that's just one other kind of tool that we can use to better understand a system that's, you know, we, we can't see it. They're like little earth clues. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> that's amazing. Lots of earth clues. It's hard to believe what's beneath our feet. Maybe because it's something that we don't really think about every day. Christian says he definitely manages to turn a few heads while out in the field with his equipment. When I go out to you know do these projects and these surveys, and, and we run into to locals out there, they're always curious to see sort of what we're up to and what kind of science, and which is great. And, and they'll start to explain, oh, we're out here measuring gravity, and they're like, well, don't we already know gravity of the Earth? Like, why are you measuring it? Like, you, I learned about that in in high school. Like, it's nine point eight meters per second, or uh, or per second squared or 32 feet per second squared. Like those are the numbers that they tell you, but what we're actually measuring, we're like, yeah, okay, 9.8 meters per second. And now, you know, from that point, divide that by a million. And that's actually what we're detecting out here. Like we're looking at very small changes in the gravity field. And that lets us know sort of what's going on underneath our feet and around us, which, which I think is really cool. I mean, I, but I'm, you know, a nerd in that regard. So not everybody's like, oh, wow. A couple of years ago, we were in the downtown area of, of Salt Lake City here. We were measuring on one of the street corners on a sidewalk uh, slab. And and we've got our little, our small meter set up, which just looks like a, an aluminum bread box, about the size of a bread box. And a GPS tripod set up next to it with an antenna and all this. And people walk by and kind of look at you funny. And every once in a while, somebody will ask you what you're doing. And uh, it would we're more than happy to explain it to them. You know, we love science. We love, you know, doing this. And one of them was was particularly memorable because he comes up and, and he says, hey, what, what are you guys doing here? And, and I, I turned to him and I said, we're, we're measuring gravity. And uh, he, he looks at me and there was a pause and I was waiting, you know, for the question. But then he just walked off like he didn't. He's like, you guys are like we were lying to him. <laughs> 
This belief aside, enhanced geothermal systems could power tens of millions of homes, businesses, and public spaces without the use of fuel. That sort of uh, leads into another point about, you know, this being a renewable resource. This heat, essentially, it's, it's being transported from the center of the Earth or the core of the Earth to its surface. This is known as heat flow. Now, with that heat flow, it's going to be higher in some places, lower in other places, you know, depending on the physical properties of the rock or the sediment that it's moving through or even water. But it's, it's always there. It's always transferring to the surface. And that goes into the atmosphere and then into space. And so it's, it's really an energy that's just sort of, you know, you can kind of think of it as, say, like a campfire that's burning. I mean, if you can get close to this campfire and kind of warm yourself or you can kind of move away from it. But regardless, that fire is still kind of burning. And so with geothermal, it's sort of like, why are we not utilizing this, you know, this energy source that's here? It's natural. It's not something that's going to, you know, shut off. By now, you're probably thinking, what about solar and wind energy? Those are renewable resources, too. And you're right. They are. But there's a key difference between solar, wind, and geothermal. The main difference between geothermal and these other renewables is that geothermal is what's called a baseload source. And what that means is that it's always on. So with solar, solar is only working when the sun is shining. Wind, wind turbines are only spinning when the wind is blowing. When it's not, you're not, you know, producing any electricity out of these, out of these fields or out of these, these energy farms. But with geothermal, it doesn't care what's going on at the surface, nighttime, daytime, it could be winter, it could be the middle of summer, you're still producing electricity. So it's always on. The thing that's important with that is say, if you're trying to supply a particular load to say a large city, if you've got everything that is you know, on solar or wind, it's going to be an intermittent source and it might not line up with what you know, the, the city's needs are. Um, one good example of that is what's known as the duck curve. So what happens is that midday, when you have, you know, your maximum, your maximum outputs for the solar farm is not lined up with your maximum demand. Then a few hours later, once everybody starts coming home from work, the amount of solar that's being generated is actually going down because the sun is going down, but the demand ramps up. The other thing that, that I should mention, a lot of the times when we're talking about solar and wind and comparing it to other resources, particularly geothermal, what typically gets mentioned is the nameplate capacity, or also known as the installed capacity. And that's because these numbers are so much larger than what would be for a typical geothermal plant. So you could have a geothermal plant that has maybe 30 megawatts uh, installed capacity. And you have a big wind farm sitting next to that that's over uh, 100 megawatts. And they're like, oh, wow, this, you know, this wind farm is huge. And then you have another a solar farm that's another 100 megawatts or more. They're like, oh, this is so easy to throw those up there. This is great. We're getting so much more uh, electricity out of them. That's actually not true. You actually have to look at what's being produced at these fields and not just what the maximum installed capacity is. Um, when you dig into that, we look at something that's called a capacity factor. So it's the ratio between the, the amount of electricity produced in a given time period to the maximum output. Remember when Christian mentioned that geothermal never turns off? 
Well, that's what makes the potential for geothermal energy so immense. Capacity factor kind of tells you how much a power plant is providing versus the installed capacity. So if you look at this capacity factor in regards to geothermal, it's at 74%, which is only second to nuclear at 91%, biomass 68%, hydro 37%. And then we look even further down the line, wind is at 33% capacity factor and solar at 25%, um, which is at the bottom. Yeah, those are both at the bottom. But everybody's like, hey, maximum, you know, installed capacity. It's so, it's great. It's so huge, but you know, it, it goes back to, is the sun shining? Is, is the wind blowing? Um, solar is great. Uh, wind is great when it's working and it's, it's cheap. And so that kind of helps with getting everything out there and putting it in, but really it's not, it's not going to be a long-term solution until you're able to store all of that energy that's being produced in these infrequent cycles. Over all these years, geothermal energy in the United States hasn't really been a main topic of conversation when it comes to renewables. Despite the U.S. being the largest producer of geothermal power, it's sort of been existing quietly in the background. You could go back tens of thousands of years, geothermal has been, you know, used by people. I mean, even in just sort of the simplest of settings, we're not, they're not making electricity, which gets the most, you know, publicity, but cooking, heating, sort of these basic things. It's been there, it's been used. Um, You know, even some of the more uh, primitive uh, people are using it. And yet we've got all this technology, we're an advanced society and we just kind of shrug it off as, oh, well, yeah, whatever. Let's go drill a hole over here and look for oil. Let's put up a wind turbine, you know, let's do these different things. Um, So, I mean, it just gets overlooked for whatever reason, particularly in, say, the U.S., because we do have a pretty good idea of how much energy we are producing and using. Geothermal has really kind of been put in the backseat, so to speak, with respect to other energy sources um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Geothermal doesn't really give you as much bang for the buck Meaning that, you know, if we compare, you know, to say a quantity called energy density, you know, if we compare that to oil or gasoline, you get a lot more uh, out of that than any other type of, of fuel. And so if we're burning this to, you know, harness that, uh, that energy, it's just easier to use these other types. Um, the other thing that, that sets it back is that... You know, it's it's not a commodity that's easily sold for significant profits. There are several countries around the world that have decided to utilize this underground resource and are heading towards a cleaner future. The ones that are most popular that you hear, might hear the most about um, would be, say, you know, Iceland is a common one. Um, New Zealand's another one. Um, if we were to look at sort of a list of the top 10 you know, the U.S. being the largest producer of geothermal power. Going from there, it would be the Philippines, Indonesia, Mexico, New Zealand, Italy, Iceland, Turkey, Kenya, and Japan. I mean, it's not something that's 
uh, only in the U.S. And it's not just a few places. It's coming up. These countries I listed, you know, they've been producing for for a while now. And there are also other countries that have sort of plans to put in geothermal power plants and systems. So, I mean, it's, it's coming up. Doesn't get a whole lot of uh, PR, but it is there. In the U.S., as far as power potential, you know, if we take a step back to geothermal power plants, most of them is, are in the western U.S. Um, the largest one is the Geysers, which is in northern California. Uh, that one actually started in 1962, and that's uh, currently installed capacity is 1.6 gigawatts. One gigawatt alone is like having 3.1 million installed solar panels. Maybe Doc Brown should have tapped into geothermal energy to power his DeLorean. Geothermal is a resource that's, it's there. It's happening, whether we take advantage of it or not. I mean, that's, that's up to us. It's not something that if we design these systems correctly, that we're going to be depleting these resources. I mean, you, you could pull too much heat out of the ground in one area, but that's just a waste of money. I mean, if you give it time, thermal fields are diffuse, things heat up, that heat is transferring from the core of the earth to the surface. If you design everything correctly, you do have you know, a renewable and sustainable system. Christian explains that geothermal has the potential to be used for heating and cooling as well. There's a lot of direct use and there's industrial applications. There's a large greenhouse that's in southern Utah um, that uses geothermal energy. The state prison is actually on a heat pump system. So it uses geothermal energy to uh, heat and cool that structure. And there's aquaculture. So basically they're keeping ponds warm to breed different types of aquatic life. It doesn't all have to be focused on just producing, you know, electricity, which is what everybody thinks about. You've got this resource that you can use for so many other things in manufacturing processes. I mean, it's just sort of, it's almost endless and kind of the possibilities that you could utilize it. And the resource is there. I mean, it's, it's in my backyard here. It's, it's, it's under the city where you are. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's just a matter of doing it. I think probably the best thing for geothermal is just awareness. The first watt generated to, uh, to power a light bulb, you know, this was done in Italy in 1906. I mean, that's not new. That's over 100 years ago. You know, since then, that field has grown into a large geothermal plant. But, you know, even here in Utah, we've got three geothermal plants here that are producing electricity. First one came online in uh, the 1980s. So it's it's been around almost as long as I've been alive. I love what I do. And the main part of it is that it's research that is contributing to sort of a a greater need or a greater cause. So if we can figure out, you know, how to harness these things, they're sustainable, they're clean, they're renewable, and we're also helping to supply energy, not just to the U.S., because if we can refine technology here, then we'd be able to give those to other countries that might not have the same resources as in money and funding, um, the expertise that we have in the U.S., we'd be able to get those to, you know, other places. So and my feeling is you kind of, you pay that forward, but maybe that's just sort of my... That's my perspective coming out of academia and research is sort of everything is open. 
anything that you can kind of figure out and contribute, you give that freely. And so that someone else, they might be able to come along and look at something that I did and say, hey, we can improve upon this. I have an idea. And, you know, I say, hey, let's go for it. You know, just keep pushing, keep, keep pushing forward. Since I had this interview with Christian, I found out his team progressed to the final round and will receive $140 million in research and development funding to further their advancements on bringing geothermal to the sustainable energy table. So maybe geothermal hasn't totally been forgotten after all. On the next episode of From the Field. They simply did not believe that I had achieved what was on my CV. I was gobsmacked when they kind of presented this to me. I I simply didn't know what to say. It had never occurred to me that, that people wouldn't believe that I had achieved what I had achieved. From the Fields, written and recorded by me, your host, Priya Shelley. Editing and sound design by Danush Parvana. Final mix by Andy Stein. Original score by Dylan Gladhorn and artwork by Atea Nujicharis. Special thanks to our guest, Christian Hardwick. If you enjoyed this episode of From the Field or have something to say, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and please visit fromthefieldpodcast.com for photos, show notes, guest links, and more. 